1: Good morning. I'm Katherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Katherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Dr. Francis E. Jensen, author of The Teenage Brain and Neuroscientist Survival Guide to Raising Adolescents and Young Adults. Dr. Jensen is professor and chair of the Department of Neurology at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania and was professor of neurology and director of translational neuroscience at Harvard Medical School and director of epilepsy research at Boston Children's Hospital. Um, Dr. Francis E. Jensen, a mother and A renowned neuroscientist and professor has drawn on her own research, parenting knowledge, and clinical experience to offer a revolutionary look at the adolescent brain. Motivated by her experience of parenting two teenagers, she is keenly aware of how exasperating this period of time as a parent can be and how cutting-edge science or scientific facts have not been made accessible to the public. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. Jensen. Well, thank you very much. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Okay, well, you have all the credentials, obviously. You are a scientist, world-renowned, but you're also a mother, and you've raised teenage uh, children, I don't know, boys or girls, or whether that makes a difference. So you are an expert. So the teenage brain, what do we need to know about the teenage brain? How do we survive it? I raised four boys, and they were all teenagers, you know, two years apart. So I, as a parent, I understand uh, part of what you're talking about.
2: Yes, well, I also had two boys um, who have now uh, safely passed through those teen years, but the point is the brain is the last organ in the body to mature. It doesn't finish until the mid to late 20s. So newsflash, you know, that is something a lot of people don't realize. And a lot of people believe that because adolescents look like adults on the outside, that they've got to be adults fully on the inside, which means their brain included. But actually, the brain is only about 80% of the way to adulthood during your teen and young adult years, progressively getting more and more complete. And the big... Um, points, I think, just to start off uh, to make that we can build upon um, is, first of all, the teenage brain um, is actually more active, uh, not that you didn't already know that, mm-hmm. than the adult brain, but literally synaptically more active, meaning the brain, the neurons, um, brain cells, neurons, um, talk to each other uh, across um, connections. Um, Little places that we call synapses, which are the little points of connection. So they send a a cell will send a process, maybe even across the brain to the other side, and touch the outside surface of another cell and make a synapse and talks to that cell that it actually sends an electrical signal. The synapses, um, when you when you're working like learning a task or memorizing something or learning a new fact, um, you're exercising one or two or a hundred of these pathways and they all have synapses that are involved and it turns out the more you use a synapse the more the bigger it gets and actually when a pro, when you've done like a lot of practice of a skill or memorized a fact what's happened is you've actually built a bigger stronger synapse in that pathway and that's what we call memory that's the new science that I think people need to know about all brains can do this adults can do it too but teenagers and children actually do it much more easily without with much less effort. And the reason is, A, they have more synapses to start with. You lose synapses as you grow older. You prune them. But, B, all the machinery that I talked about that builds a synapse, the molecular machinery, is actually set by nature at higher levels in the childhood and the adolescent brain before coming down to adulthood. That's why, for instance, children can learn two and three languages seamlessly, um, effortlessly, because they, they just look at something and they practically learn it automatically. Teenagers are not quite as uh, adept as children are, but they're much more than adults. So, So the first point is that they're in a unique place where their brains are like sponges. They imprint and they can really learn much faster. So it's a time to take real advantage of. But there's a part two. Um, they may be stronger than the adult. The way I've just in 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 terms of ability to learn and memorize. But one there's another area in which they're actually weaker, and that is our brain regions um, connect to one another. I just told you that a brain cell sends processes across from one side of the you know brain to the other. So those regions need to be connected by those processes, and those processes. Um, are like wires. So they need to be insulated. And um, we have a natural uh, substance uh, called myelin. It's a fatty substance made by tiny little cells that actually slowly insulates all of these processes. So they can be split second, super fast signaling, you know, pathways. Now, from the back, this process actually starts at the back of your brain and moves forward. So the last place in the brain to connect is the frontal lobe. Now, what does the frontal lobe do? it is the seat of executive function. Um, It's where we have empathy, insight, judgment, and most importantly, impulse control. (laughs) And when you think about a teenager, this is really where they are quite weak. They they don't yet have that split-second access to their frontal lobe. They've got frontal lobes. They just aren't Able to access them, like in the moment, for decision making and judgment. Hence, they tend to be very. We do believe it explains, in a large part, their impulsivity and risk-taking behavior that can be vexing. um, But you know, as a parent or a teacher, as you watch them just walk into trouble all the time. um, But Dr. Jensen, let me
1: just uh, stop you a minute. So you're saying, for instance, as parents and putting this into practical terms, or as teachers, um, we have. Or we may have unrealistic expectations of our teenagers because we really don't understand their brain functioning and that their ability to, you know, mm-hmm. impulse control, as you as you mentioned, is, is not, we expect them to be able to have impulse control, but they really don't have the tools yet in their brain. That's right. Yeah, but we see them as adults. And so, so let's talk about that in social terms because you really explained yeah. it really, yeah.
2: So we look at a teenager, so let's just think about, um, we don't do a very good job. Think about the complete, set, the mixed messages that we send um, to teenagers and young adults. Uh, it's like we think something magic happens at 12.01 a.m. on their 18th birthday, that suddenly they become competent adults and can vote, they can go to war, <laughs> serve in the military, but, on the other hand, we don't let them rent cars we don't let them drink alcohol um, we don't let them um, get full driver's licenses with full you know there's often um, you know limitations put around late teen early drivers so we we already are ambivalent about whether they're an adult or not. It seems like we make them adults when it suits us we don't make them adults when it doesn't suit us, and sometimes we do the opposite <laughs> um, so I think you know we Neuroscience, with the amount of new research, and it's really research that's about a decade and a half old, or not even, it's all in the last five to ten, at most fifteen years, that this research on the adolescent brain and how it's not, it's not, it's a project under construction still, um, that this could actually help us societally. It can also help us with the legal system. It can also help us with education and curricula. In a way, It's a window where it is a sort of a carpe diem window. You know, seize the day. Um, They can learn so much better, and and it's great that we have them in high school and in college for some kids. At this, it's a it's a big learning time in life, but it's also a time when they're still going to make, you know, take a lot of risks. I do also think that the internet and social networking networking can exacerbate make make their use of, you know, their risk-taking actually worse because they're kind of playing with fire when some, you know, schoolyard prank of of the past becomes a, a viral video on someone that can go across the globe with severe repercussions on um, anybody involved in that. And I, I think that they, we, we have a, a very complicated situation in our society today. What, these young people have um, access to because of how where we put them in society, but really what they're really capable of managing. And I would say that also the stress, um, the negative parts of um, some of uh, our lives today can actually, they, it, we now know it does have a, take a bigger toll on the adolescent brain. So stress in adolescence for a given amount of stress compared to the adult actually leaves long-lasting repercussions. You have an increased risk of depression if you're severely stressed as an adolescent from any kind, you know, emotional or even physical stress. So I think we have to, um, you know, really think through what is the environment they're living in? How can we help them know about their limitations and not walk further into a precarious, stressful situation or something that might be harmful to them?
1: So how do we do that? I guess maybe we should start, or I'd like to start, like, well, in the home, as parents, as yeah. a family. I mean, because, um, I mean, that's the place, you know, well, mm-hmm. obviously, I think that's the first place to start. What do we do? I mean, now that we have this information, and, I mean, you've defined the problem, so, okay, so we have all of this. And I think it's more stressful, you describe social media, but in, in many ways, the pressure to get into college. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so much stress which yes. you can't necessarily alle- you can't alleviate you can. the stress, but it's how we're going to help them to handle this stress, I think is what we're talking about, given their adolescent brain.
2: Exactly. So I, I have off, I've been using sort of the term, you know, the adults around an adolescent should give them a frontal lobe assist. You know, we have our frontal lobes, last I checked, um, that it should be working, up and running, and I, we can see things uh, that we see them walking into or choices that they're not making with the right, You know, they're not making with all of the information or maybe more impulsively than they should. I think adults need to um, help model what the reasoning process is and know that certain things, especially when it comes to, um, you know, illicit substances, substance abuse, um, other really risky things that uh, adolescents can tend to get into. And I would argue that they probably can get into them easier in today's world than even 10 years ago. So I think that, you know, parents need to stay connected to try to not alienate their children. One of the um, reasons for writing this book, when I realized I was finding all this information out for my own purposes, I would be standing on the sidelines, you know, at a football game or whatever, and talk to um uh a, a parent, and I'd be saying, "Well, so you know, the reason why they do this is this," and they're like, "No, really? That? Exp- oh, so now I know," and and the emotion comes out of it at that point. So I thought I started to give Teen Brain 101 talks to high schools and parents groups, and then and teachers, and now you know we wrote the book. The hope is that by r- looking at the real facts around the teen brain, and this book is not a lot of tips. You know, that are social psychology. This is like real science facts put in context so parents can use them, point it out to their kids. Think about it. Helps you distance yourself a little bit. You might not be as angry or as vexed when you realize that the biology is kind of making, in part contributing to this behavior. It's not all rudeness and maliciousness. (laughs) You know? So I, it helps parents be a little bit more patient, count to ten, and kind of stop. Also, explicitly explaining to the kids, you know, we now know you, you do have these limitations. I can help you, but know this. Know, for instance, that you can get addicted um, uh, more easily than an adult because, of course, they can learn better, better as I've just explained, but addiction is a form of learning. So it's, a, it's another form of growing synapses. It's just for the wrong reason. And so they can get actually addicted harder, stronger, longer, faster than an adult also. So they're more vulnerable to some things and more vulnerable to stress. They actually, studies have been done that look at their emotional responses to frightening you know, visual images. They have far more activity in their brain compared to an adult um, to those. So, so, so things feel more visceral and more shocking to them. And at the same time, they don't have their frontal lobes to say, "Look, this is kind of all in my head," or "Or this isn't really as bad as it feels." You know, let me think about you know the logic. You know, be reasonable here. They don't have that. We we access that as adults. They don't have that yet. And and the world is throwing a lot of things at them at a very high pace these days. So a little bit of understanding and also explaining to them um, why they feel the way they do, and 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 try to be, you know try to. Ex- teach, they are good learners, so they can kind of learn some of this stuff until it comes online instinctively as your frontal lobes connect.
1: So also what you're saying is, I mean, I want to step back when you are, I guess, mm-hmm. at the football field with other parents, because I think there is this kind of, well, there's a lot of competition among parents in a comp- the competition that, yeah. they're, you know, that their kid is the biggest <clears throat> and the brightest and going to the best college and all those kinds of things, yeah. but also parents feel like I'm the only one, you know, if their kid gets caught drinking or even right. with drugs. And so, like, really parents feeling not so isolated that this is just part of the brain, that it's just not, my kid is not the only one and I'm not the only parent dealing with it, because I think that's really important as you're talking about educating the parents um, and educating the the kids. Um, and so your book, uh, you go around to the different uh, high schools,
2: as I understand it, right? Tra- mm-hmm. uh, t- yeah. I used to do that, yeah. right, and and give talks. Um, yes. Yes, I did. And that's sort of how it started. I just thought, well, look, I'm a a neurologist. I see, you know, I I know about the brain. I see patients who are adolescents um, who, you know, do or do not take medication as directed. Um, I was a parent myself um, watching this evolve as an experiment in my own house. And I also happened to do work on brain development in my laboratory. And so I was very well positioned to just get into the literature and get it out there I was answering questions for myself. I turned what could have been anger and frustration overwhelmingly, as we all experience with these kids at times, into more curiosity and I found it really helped me be more measured um, it 's not perfect um, nothing 's perfect that 's life. but you know i it was um, it helped me stay more patient and and have a little bit more empathy for my child. And recognizing that there were some things that truly were behaviors they were emitting or acts that they were, you know, involved in that really were beyond their control. Yeah. How do you start the conversation?
1: Because you have to begin that conversation either with both parents or one parent. Mm-hmm. It has to be ongoing. Can we talk about that? Because you have this information now or we have this information now and you said the information is what, only 10 years mm-hmm. old. So that's, that's fairly new. Um so how did you, the lay parent, not the, parent who is a neuroscientist like yourself, yeah. but how do they begin those kinds of conversation with their kids? The kids, let's say, going to, to uh, into ninth grade, going into high school, yeah. and ninth grade is sometimes high school. Um, how do you prepare them so that you 're not sounding moralistic or pedantic or all the things that they 're going to rebel again with, rebel against with the adolescent brain, but you want them to have this understanding about their and I think the word like you said is vulnerable, they are really vulnerable, and they are more vulnerable now than they ever will be to this mm-hmm. risky behavior.
2: How do you begin that conversation? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head when you say they don 't just listen to a parent pontificating you know and saying because I told you so that didn 't barely even worked when they were toddlers right you know why do you want you know why should I go to my room because I tell you to you know this is more the science that's in this book is supposed will hopefully (laughs) be um, a tool that the parents can use it can be a discussion point because it's not just because we're telling you to not do drugs it's because guess what Chronic daily pot smoking um, decreases your IQ permanently. You know, if you if you smoke marijuana through your teen years, you know, and there's a study. Would you like to see this study? That's that there's a figure of on page, you know, 203. You know, to really just say, look, there's data, and one of the things about this generation is that they respect data. They are they are children of the information age. It is all about information and credible sources and um data and and they will respect data i have to say to a greater extent than a parent <laughs> um, when it comes out if it sounds like a command from a parent so i think to get to say did you know this this is amazing information do you know that you know learning something now is going to be two or three times easier than learning it in 10 years you know this is an opportunity or did you know that you know you, you probably um, you're probably feeling this way you're overly moody right now or very upset about this breakup in your you know call it with your boyfriend or girlfriend um because you know your emotional areas of your brain are actually more connected than your frontal lobes right now and and you're actually there's there's data to show that you have a more strong emotional responses up and down to almost everything right now and and we're there with you but you'll get through this you know yes. I, I think, Dr. Jensen, it's really a,
1: important that yeah. you, you know uh, that you you talk about data because mm-hmm. they do have access to the data. It's just not parents telling you that this is right. you know the the, the 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 information, but they can go online and validate that. So I think that, just like you said, that's really that's important. But what do you do? This whole issue of social media. I mean, you're not going to. How do you make that a positive? you know, rather than a negative. And, I mean, I guess we know, you know, the information can be very positive, but the way in which teenage, well, bullying, for instance, Mm -hmm. and which can really lead to very destructive behavior, uh, how do you incorporate the whole access to social media in the most positive way you can to the developing teenage or adolescent brain?
2: Exactly. So everything's got, you know, everything's got a good and bad side. So the good side is, of course, they're feeding their brains at a much higher rate in this window than probably any other generation has ever done, and so we we will await the result. Um, it is probably going to be uh, truly awesome what some people are going to be able to uh, a- acquire in terms of knowledge through the ease of the internet at this age, if as long as they can structure the knowledge correctly, and we teach them how to do that. The downside, of course, is that they can get to, into some very bad and stressful images, access to um, substances of abuse much more easily through texting rather than having to, you know, go into a seedy neighborhood in their town. It's it's become much easier to access a lot of things that are probably not good for your brain. Um, and there's also this competitive social networking. Is like, I look what I'm doing. That's risky. Can you top my risk? You know, and, and it becomes almost competitive. Like, look what I can do. Um, and so it really can um, sort of am- amplify their their risk taking behavior as well. They need to be told this. They need to be made aware that you know this is um, that they're very vulnerable to this kind of influence. And we have to help them manage the their access to social networking and the internet. And this is is a challenging thing because, you know, w- when we say we have to tell them, we have, as parents are of a generation that has like little to no knowledge about how to really do this in any skillful manner because yeah. we don't, we didn't grow up with this. So I think this is going to evolve. I truly believe that like our millennial colleagues may be very helpful in this regard dealing with um, their teenage siblings um, Probably still based on, yeah because point. i I, you
1: know, I just wanted to interrupt you because I think that the, it is shifting because mm-hmm. now you have parents in their let's say forties mm-hmm. who may have t- t- who have teenagers, but they too they they had access i mean they know social media, which right. is different than say parents maybe in their fifties or sixties so right. that that's changing every, let's say, five years. So we need a years.
2: conversation, you know, a conversation. It needs to be discussed in school. I mean, just like I, I've been saying this for a while, you know, we have, you know, health class in school. One, We should have a class about your brain, you know, in yeah. high school. It, people should know. It should be either folded in with sort of your, you know, the health uh, education um, courses that are done in high schools. But thinking about how do you manage the Internet how, for your own mental health. I mean, mental health is is a really um, important topic now, and, and now we realize that they're more vulnerable to a whole host of things than adults are. You know, from everything binge drinking, for instance, we put this in the book, there's science to show that, you know, binge drinking um, for the same amount of alcohol level, uh, intoxication, um will just cause an intoxicated adult, but it'll actually cause brain damage and brain cell death in certain areas of the brain and in an adolescent because they have so many more synapses and that these drugs are sort of if, um, attaching to those synapses and having a bigger effect on the adolescent brain than the adult. And everybody, the myth is, oh, they're so resilient, they'll bounce back. It's actually the opposite. And, in you know, so again, social networking, we have to have a conversation about this. We have to have them at least be aware of how to m- you know, to declutter their minds from time to time. I know a lot of schools are talking now about, um, you know, mindfulness and trying to take some downtime. This may be what it will come to, to sort of manage your, your, the stimulation to your brain. You'll wear it out. <laughs> yeah. So now we have new information. and We have to
1: first, I mean,
2: this is what, I just
1: repeating what you said, but you, we have to just, spell some of those old myths, which kind of hang on pretty, you know, um, that they teenagers or adolescents will be more resilient in terms of, like, impulsive behavior and stuff. That's not really true. The damage is done, and it's very serious, and it's long-term and permanent sometimes. But another thing you said in the beginning of the conversation was, uh, you know, we're talking about, let's say, high school. But this goes on into college because this adolescent brain, I guess I'm putting that in I don't know in in quotes because it's really in, well into
2: your 20s. So that includes college as well when a young to, adult, right? It's yeah. not done yet. Not till the mid to late 20s and boys are about 2 years behind girls on that. They you know, they'll get there, but they're they're um, there's a lag. Um, girls get to each milestone about 2 years ahead of boys um, with respect to brain development, structural brain development. So So what do we do uh, when
1: they go to college?
2: Well, then, then they're, they're the not thing. with us we, anymore. We talk about this a lot, actually. Um, it, look, your brain isn't mature when you start college, and it's not mature when you end college either. <laughs> so, you know, it's still in under construction, and uh, it's getting very close. But we all know uh, people, you know, who graduate from college um, who are definitely not that well organized, and they're sort of trying to figure out who they are, and they go and do an internship for a couple of years. And just something really wonderful happens in those two years. They really – it just – they pull it all together that's called the end of brain development right that's where your frontal lobes come in and that process of myelination is done and so a lot you know some people will be mature at 20 some people will take till 29 there're going to be individual variation obviously too and there's going to be late girls and early boys so it's it's not everybody it's it there's a you know just like it's natural variation but in general it's the mid to late 20s so i think colleges are starting to talk about this certainly helps us understand the risk-taking behavior that we see in fraternities and some of these um, social issues that come up. It certainly helps us understand cyberbullying, um, you know, why it's rampant and, and it's sadly a problem. Also, impulsivity. Um, you know, can feed into lots of different uh, group behaviors that um, we see as a problem in colleges. Now, there's two other things I want to say about the college window. One is that it's still in this window of this glorious time for synaptic plasticity that I've, you know, mentioned, this ability of your synapses to be molded by experience and grow. So really, it's a great time to be learning, and they're learning machines still in college. Um, so that is a wonderful thing. It's important for you to also and your your listeners to realize that during teen and early adult life, mostly during teens actually, your IQ can even change up or down. So good things can make it go up, bad things will make it go down. So there, it's a really malleable period in time where you can really work on um, strengths and c- try to correct weaknesses. And that also is should be addressed during college. There's one last thing about the college population that Tends to be a topic more than in the high school population, and that is mental illness. Um, it turns out that some of our most severe mental illnesses, like schizophrenia and bipolar disease and depression, are generally diseases of that come we see come on, and you can everybody can think back on their own own experience with friends or you know family or other people in their environment. It usually comes on in the late teens and early adulthood and early twenties, and this is not because you finally become depressed about your life at that point, it's the fact that your brain has reached a point where it can actually do depression or do schizophrenia. You need those frontal lobes to actually manifest the disease. So before that time, the parts of the brain that schizophrenia uses weren't really online. And now, you know, when you get to that age, that's why you see these uh, mental illnesses blossom in uh, the college, um, you know, college age group or the post, you know, the late uh, uh, teen, early adolescent, early adult age group, and that's another thing that's important to know is that suicidality—you know, suicide—you know—it has a little peak at this window of age too, and suicide is a very—you know—has an impulsive component to it as well. Of course, that's not helped by the fact your frontal lobes aren't online for impulse control. So there's—it's um, a complicated time and college. Uh, you know, college provosts and academic life people are 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 acutely aware of this, and and also, you know, hopefully becoming more and more aware of the ba- of the real science behind this. Time. Well, that's a uh, a good uh, thought, I guess, to to wrap the interview up with because we we really we've
1: reached the end of our half hour. But um, I want to make sure that that uh, well, everyone knows the title of the book. Obviously, the Teenage Brain: A Neuroscientist Survival Guide to Raising Adolescents and Young Ado- Adults. Um, and we've been talking to Dr. Francis E. Jensen, who is professor and chair of the Department of Neurology at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. And Dr. Jensen, uh, just for anyone, obviously, I'm sure many people want to just continue uh, read your book, but also online, Where, what website can we go to, to to reference you and get more information?
2: Um, actually, the HarperCollins website has uh, a whole uh, website for this book.
1: Oh, great. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning.
2: All right. Thank you so much. We're going to take a short break
1: right now. I'm Catherine Zock, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute.
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you are interested in real estate in America's largest city or anywhere, be sure to listen for Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Although our focus is on Manhattan and other real estate markets in and around New York City, we'll have plenty of information that will help you successfully buy, sell, and close a transaction no matter where you are in the world. Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco can be heard every Tuesday at 9 a.m. in New York, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in every week for Sex Out Loud. Host Tristan Terramino will discuss everything from sexual pleasure to sexual politics. Get an insider's perspective from leaders in the adult film industry, the LGBT community, and the sex-positive world. From kink to non-monogamy, nothing is off-limits. Plus, you can call in to join the conversation. Sex Out Loud airs every Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel.
1: We're back. I'm Catherine Zock, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zoch Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning, my second guest is Stephanie Hosford. She's author of Bald, Fat, and Crazy, How I Beat Cancer While Pregnant with One Daughter and Adopting Another. Uh, when Stephanie, uh, who is an occupational therapist, triathlete and mother of one, was 37 years old, she was in the midst of adopting a daughter from China and accepted she wouldn't get pregnant after four years of trying. But her focus quickly changed when she discovered a hard chickpea-sized lump in her breast. The lump turned out to be stage one breast cancer and within days of her diagnosis, she also discovered she was pregnant. Um... As she tried to understand how she, a healthy non-smoker with no family history of breast cancer could have this disease, she also had to decide whether or not she could keep the baby that was growing inside her. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Stephanie.
3: Oh, thank you so much. Pleasure to be here.
1: Well, before we got on the air, you said to me, did you read the book? And yes, I read the book.
3: I just want everyone <laughs> to
1: know I read the book, and it was a, a page-turner. I read it like in a day and a half. So,
3: Thank
1: you. Yeah, it's just filled with all kinds of emotional, uh, just emotional things that really relate to women, of course. Uh, breast cancer, adopting yes. a baby, all of those, a relationship with your husband, et cetera. So, I mean, um, it, your journey, I guess, is like almost one of those it's kind of unbelievable and I guess it's 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 fairly unique because this doesn't happen often that you get Correct. diagnosed with breast cancer and then you also are pregnant at the same time. So Right.
3: Yeah. So let's yeah. let's start with that day I guess. Like you know Sure. Yeah. Sure. Well um so yes, I was thirty seven years old at the time. Um, you know, healthy. Non-smoker, like you said. Um, I had a six-year-old son, Ethan, and we were in the middle of an adoption, my husband and I. Uh, so that day, I, about five days after I found the lump myself, um, they gave me a call and told me that, yeah, I had breast cancer. So the initial reaction, which I'm sure some people out there can relate to, lots of people, unfortunately, is that there's no air in the room. In the world, really, to breathe anymore. Um, it's absolutely shocking. Um, you know, it didn't run in my family. It was completely out of the blue for me. So, and then I went into a little denial, thought it was a mistake. Um, and then there was just this sense of fear and, and devastation. You know, I didn't know what would happen with the adoption. So that was, that was the initial reaction just to cancer. And then, like you said, three days later, I find out, I'm also pregnant after trying for five years and nothing happening. So a little bit of denial again, you know, took, I think, three pregnancy tests to make sure. And then there's um, fear and I wanted to be so happy about it, but I didn't know if I really could yet. So I was very confused. Yeah, I would imagine the ambivalence, or if you feel happy about that,
1: but then you're devastated. I'm putting words in your, but you know, feeling devastated yes. about the cancer. But also, right. you know, you, and, and cancer at any time, or breast cancer at any time, is not a great diagnosis. Any we don't want to, anyone wants to hear. But you were 37 years old. You're, I mean right. that. I mean to be 37, and I'm I'm hearing more and more about young women being diagnosed with breast cancer at 37. So it's it has true. to be a little different than if you were 67.
3: Right. Well, and, and it tends to be, at, at that age, it tends to be uh, the more aggressive kind, which is called triple negative breast cancer, which is not hormone related. So, the, and that's exactly what mine turned out to be. So, um, unfortunately, it was a, you know, very virulent, aggressive type of cancer, and yet it turned out to not be related to the pregnancy. So there were no hormones. You know, it was two separate issues. So, which is, um, it didn't make sense either. You know, why at that time that this would happen, I, I couldn't figure it out.
1: <laughs> what was your husband's reaction?
3: So, my husband, Grant, his initial reaction, you know, there are kind of two reactions going on. One is to the cancer itself. And so he was, you know, extremely positive right away. And, you know, I was falling apart and here he was telling me, you know, you're the strongest woman I know. You're going to be fine. We're going to deal with this, which was great. But of course, I didn't really believe it at the time. You hear cancer and you think, you know, death is imminent and certain. And then, you know, three days later, and he's actually the one who had me uh, take the pregnancy test and you know, I just didn't believe, you know, I was doing it for him, really, you know. And um so his initial reaction to the pregnancy was a, a bit definitely confusion, too. We all kind of had the same reaction. And I even say in the book, Bald, Fat, and Crazy, that perhaps we've entered a realm in which there are no pure emotions anymore, where all feelings are mixed, blended, or pureed. And so that's pretty much how we felt. We were in this kind of nebulous sort of emotional world. Yeah, which would seem to me would be normal. And also, I think at the time, you were living with your mother or living in
1: your mother's house. We were. And so your mother, what was, and she had somewhat different, obviously, different reaction than your husband, um, different person. Obviously, she's your mother. So Um, um, how did she respond
3: She was, you know, normally my mom is rather emotional. (laughs) And she, but she was rather calm, which honestly scared me more. Because I thought, oh, this is, this is very serious if my mom's... Yeah, this is really bad if my mother's... Right. Yeah. Right. She gets rattled by the little things. The big things, she's calm. So then I was like, oh no. (laughs) So, yeah, but uh, again, she was kind of in our same world. She wanted to be so happy for us, and yet she didn't really know if she was allowed to be.
1: And then, of course, there's another significant person—your your son. And uh, son. yeah, and and how old is he? What did you
3: say? Four or six? He was six at the time. He had just started kindergarten.
2: Yeah, so what do so, you say to a
1: six year old or how do you handle yeah. that
3: because six year olds know what's happening;
1: they know a lot's happening they may know not what it's happening but right. and many people try to shield them from it and then of course they feel an outsider um or did you how did you you know incorporate him into all of that you know or right. did you
3: right well you know he you can't underestimate them exactly you're right um they understand and can handle more than we think um he um was, he reacted at first to my, cause I had, you know, I pretty much had my first meltdown in front of him, which scared him. So that, that very first day I went in to this room, to his room and, you know, just told him everything would be fine. Although inside I was thinking, you know, will it be? I don't yeah. know, but isn't, I didn't really know what to tell him other than I would be fine, cause I wanted him to not be scared. So, you know, and then along the way we, revealed things to him. The more that we knew what we were up against, um, you know, that I ended up being stage one and, you know, the type of medicine I would take, you know, we, we told him the truth, but not every detail.
1: The truth is as much as a six-year-old can incorporate, yeah, and as you say, it, they can they exactly. can do some of it, but not all of it, and uh, right. you just kind of get a feel for how what he can accept and what he can't accept. Okay, so the right. next step is, like, you have cancer you have to be treated we're talking about what chemotherapy and or radiation yes. and then what's that going to do to the baby uh, or right. to the growing fetus and how do you make that how did you make that decision like to decide to go on with the pregnancy
3: or not right right well we really didn't know what to think we pretty much thought that we might have to um terminate but that we knew that we needed some help, that I needed to see someone right away. And so we started, well, actually Grant started making appointments all over Los Angeles. And the first few doctors that we went to, the first two in particular, said to abort the uh, pregnancy that, you know, chemotherapy technically had been done before um, with on pregnant women. But, uh, they wouldn't, you know, they didn't want to, uh, recommend it or take my case on, really. That was just the feeling we got. And being that they recommended, uh, termination was, you know, proved that they really didn't believe in it. And so, and even when Grant asked, you know, if, if it was your wife, would you tell her to abort? And uh. they said yes. So, you know, I was devastated, even though I kind of knew already what I had to do and so but then we went to this one more appointment even though I was I was horribly sad I didn't want to hear again you know you need to terminate Um, but we went to this place called City of Hope out here in California and it happens to be a center of excellence it's a wonderful cancer treatment center that is exactly what they do Um, very as it turns out cutting edge experts in their field um latest research and we went there for a consultation and did you have to it. I just want to you know for those who are yeah. listening like did you okay you got
1: one or two or I don't know maybe even Three doctors telling you you need to terminate, you need to have an abortion, and you didn 't right. want to do that, so did you go online looking for references like the real practical what did you because you 're thinking i right. don 't want to terminate this pregnancy, I need another right. opinion, third or fourth mm-hmm. opinion how did you get that how did you get to that
3: point right well, you know, and i really i didn 't want to just keep searching for someone who would tell me what i I mean, in a way, I wanted to hear another answer, but I was resigned to you know this is these are experts they 're telling me what to do um, but so there was people kept saying, you know friends and some family members they were helping me online researching, getting um, you know recommendations from people and there was this one woman at city of Hope that and City of Hope kept coming up on our radar, um, and so did this one woman in particular and um, so that's how we we got in. My my husband uh, called in and just said, "Look, you know, my wife is pregnant. We need a consultation right away." And she did take us right away. And um, at first, I saw this oncologic surgeon over there and who had been recommended a lot. And he's the one who told me, "You know, we have, over here we've done this before. We've pulled women through safely. We've done you know the research, and this can be done." And so it was it was a, a leap of faith in my part to go and, and I know you've read the book, so you know it wasn't an easy decision. Yeah, and, and that's and kind forth. of what I
1: want to talk to you about, because it's mm-hmm. like even once you, okay, this oncologist says it's okay, but, you know, you go home and think, well, what if it's not okay? Am I going to destroy, you know, have chemotherapy? And I think one of the things you said in the book was that, which I, didn't know was that the key, that the chemotherapy the drugs don't cross the placenta it protects the baby somehow exactly. it's it, yeah
3: exactly yeah and it turns out you know I mean you can't take an aspirin because that does cross the placenta and yet the drugs that for my particular cancer don't cross the placenta so you know the baby was would be unharmed and they they were. So confident in themselves, and this is, you know, this is a world-renowned treatment center. It's not like I went to the corner. Yeah, you can't aura. go to the local. <laughs> shop.
1: Let's face it, in, in small-town America, you do have to go to the a top place, like you're describing. Yeah,
3: you do, you do, and you know, for definitely for more unique cases like mine was. So, um, so I did. You know, they were uh, very, uh, like I said, confident in what they could do. And, you know, I did more research, of course, online and found that there were, uh, you know, some cases out there. And, um, you know, the percentages of abnormalities in babies whose mothers had gone through chemo while pregnant are in line with the general population. So, you know, what little research had been done had proven that part.
1: So, uh, Stephanie, I don't remember in the book whether you said this or not, but were there chat rooms, or were there places where you could actually, did you actually talk to any other mothers who had gone through this?
3: You know, I, for a long time, felt I was absolutely alone (laughs) in the world with this, and I even tried a a group therapy session once, and I found, you know, no one can relate to me, and, you know, here I am just wandering around by myself, Um, but I did find this one place, it's called Hope for Two. And it's the Pregnancy with Cancer Network. And they actually match women up with another woman who's gone through the exact thing and counsel. And so I, I didn't mention that, uh, go into detail in that, you know, in the book or anything, a little bit about group therapy. But yeah, it's an, it's an excellent network. And so, you know, if anyone finds themselves in that particular situation, there is a group That can, you know, help you not feel alone.
1: Yeah, good. So hope for two. Yeah, because I I didn't remember. Your experience was not a good one, just walking into a supportive group, which didn't turn out to be supportive. And the other thing that you <laughs> mentioned, which, <laughs> uh, the uh, you know, the pink ribbon thing in the middle of all of this really wasn't that appealing either, not wanting to associate, and I have many, unfortunately, friends who have been diagnosed to have breast cancer, some who mm-hmm. get into, like, joining and running for, you know, cancer, and then others who, I'm I'm really not part of that group, I don't want to associate with that group. So, right. yeah, you say in the beginning you didn't want to, but then that kind of evolved, and that changed
3: it did it did and you know everybody is is different of course i was at first just not willing to yeah be part of that yet it was too soon i didn't see myself as part of the group although i obviously was um but the the further i got the more you know actually after i came through i was on the other side of it the more distance i had the safer i felt which is that's just me then i felt like okay i can you know be part of. I can hang the pink ribbon now. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah, the
1: state, Like the, the more distant you were from um, the, you know, not knowing what really was going to happen, uh, then it was okay right. to be part of the group, right? Because it was
3: positive. Right, um, and it was also. I tend to be very uh, a private person, believe it or not. Even though I just wrote a book wrote about a it. Wrote a book. But, yeah, I know. So it sort of doesn't make sense. But at the time when I was going through it, I was very private you know, mainly because I was so scared. I didn't have the answers. I didn't want anyone's pity, that's for sure. So, I, you know, we kind of kept things under wraps for the most part.
1: So in the process, and I've had been through three pregnancies um, and okay. not having cancer, and, you know, even, <laughs> the, you know, you kind of wonder, like, is this normal? Is that normal? So you have, like, these dual mm. things happen, you know, you're pregnant and you're getting chemo. Mm. Was it you know, just describe your feelings like for those nine months being afraid. Well, maybe this isn't normal. Maybe I'm hurting my baby. I mean, you know, that right. kind of yeah.
3: Well, what was what was great actually is I was monitored like crazy. I mean, I had ultrasounds, you know, way more than the normal pregnancy. <laughs> um, I was seen by a perinatologist and of course my OB, and they were all very much on the same team as far as they all believed everything would be fine, which also helped a lot. You know, you have to get a team together that believes in in what you're doing. And, um, you know, actually the perinatologist, who's a a specialist in, um, in, you know, the ultrasounds and all, he had done this before as well. So he knew exactly what to look for and just assured me every step of the way, you know, she's developing perfectly, this is all fine, she's not being affected. So that really, you know, helped me. With each ultrasound, I felt stronger and more confident and then, you know, was able to just know, you know, this is, it's going to be okay. Yeah, so lots and lots of support. Yeah. Yes. Which,
1: yeah, yeah, which would, I assume, was even, and you had also had one, pregnancy too, so, you know, you'd that you know, had some obviously experience in in going through nine months of pregnancy. All right, so True. now at the same time you're adopting, and you had been in the process of adopting your daughter yeah. from China. I know. Um,
3: Just to add another twist, right? Yeah. And yeah. decided to continue with that. Yes. Okay. So at first, you know, I I mean, I was absolutely committed for the for the two years. Prior to that, we were two years into the waiting process, which is so difficult to wait for a child but um, so, when the health crisis came and took center stage, I, I really had to stop my obsession <laughs> with the adoption for a little while we didn't We were not matched up yet at the time, so I was able to put it on the back burner for a little while, just by default, it had to be put there and So, and even though I was, I was very scared that we'd have to make, you know, a a decision about it. But by the time that I knew everything would be okay, my prognosis was great. I was stage one, you know, um, I was, I was handling chemo really well. Actually, I got really lucky there. Um, You know, I, I just knew that she was still meant to be with our family. We really had to look past this crazy year of treatment and just how we wanted our family, you know, to be for from then on, from after treatment and, and beyond. So, you know, by the time it was time to make any sort of decision, we got matched up with a little girl and I saw her picture and I was just, you know, absolutely, this is our daughter and go get her. <laughs> so <laughs> And you did go get her, and now you 're a family of five
2: we yeah. over
1: what five years it 's been five years since you were first diagnosed over five years, I guess since yeah, you were first almost, diagnosed almost eight almost yeah eight what did everybody else think? You mean, I know there was one person that you talk about in the book that wasn 't supportive one of your friends <laughs> i don 't know if she's still a friend or not, probably not, but then <laughs> uh, but then there were those who. Uh, really supported you, and how about now? I mean, are you you know an anomaly
3: are you just like the normal
1: i don't know what it's normal if there is a normal, but uh right family of five
3: yeah, you know really, for we're just a normal family of five, three very active children playing sports, going to school, doing really well, you know my daughter, Samantha, just turned. Seven. She just had a birthday. Um, Naomi, the, my middle daughter. Um, the, uh, Naomi is the one adopted from China. I usually don't go around saying, you know, my adopted daughter, but yeah. um, <laughs> for for this for this case, um, yeah, she uh, is eight and a half. So, and my son is almost fourteen, and we're just all very just a normal family doing normal family stuff.
1: Do you ever get scared the cancer is going to return?
3: You know for the first five years, I, there's always that fear. Um, I knew my chances were really, really good. It was a small chance. I had done everything I could to prevent it from coming back. So, you know, I felt really good about that. Um, and so, you know, it's always going to be in the back of your head, but by the time for my particular type, by the time you reach, you know, three years, it's Really, really good. By by five years, you're considered cured, and now that and then everything on top of that is just great. When you said you did everything you could
1: to prevent cancer coming back, one of the things is you had a double mastectomy.
3: I did, I did. Um, That was after. So I did not go through radiation. By the way, I didn't, I didn't do that. Um, After, so I had um, had the lumpectomy, and usually you would get radiation after that, but and this is after I gave birth, actually, in the timeline, I went back and they said, okay, it's either time for radiation or more surgery. And I said, you know, I have three children, I am all I want to do is just live. So I'm done, more surgery, you know. So, yeah, so my chances, they gave me my chances of the second occurrence would be one in four before, but now that I had the surgery, it's more like two to three percent. So, you know, it's... I can live with that. Yeah. So that and, and that was a
1: decision. I think also you made that decision after, you know, after you ha- after all the I don't I don't you know after you had had the baby and a healthy baby and gone through all
3: of this and the chemo. So it was made sort of in, in
1: calmer circumstances, should I say? I, I don't know. It was, yeah.
3: Um, yeah. Yes. I mean, it was kind of on the heels of of everything, but it was because uh, you know you you have a certain window to make that decision, but. You know, I just decided that that was the way to go for me to really move on and feel really confident that I could always be here, at least not, you know, get taken down by breast cancer. <laughs> right. Well, that's, I mean, what a story. What can I say except recommending the book? It's
1: um bald, fat, and crazy, how I beat cancer while pregnant with one daughter and adopting another. And, of course, in, we haven't been too – there's a lot of humor in the book, too, which was, is, there, you know, in the dark yeah. – story. it could be a dark story, but you add a lot of humor and you make it fun, but yet um, – Well, thank you.
3: Thank yeah. you. I did, you know, it, with, with time comes perspective, and then I could – you know, it wasn't anything – you know, hilarious at the time, but I think you know now when I wrote it, I was able to definitely, you know, add in some humor, and so yeah, that's why the the cover is, you know, a humorous cover. <laughs> it's a <laughs> it is. It's a very funny cover
1: well, uh, for anybody who wants to see it. We'll go online, and you can go to Stephanie Hossford, H-O-S-F-O-R-D dot com, uh, okay. for yeah more information about Stephanie and about the book and. Thanks so much for being on the show th- this morning. It's a happy Absolutely. ending. It's a great ending.
3: Well, thank you. It does have a happy ending. And, you know, when I was going through, uh, my time, my, living my story, I just, I couldn't really find a lot of stories with happy endings that were humorous and yet honest. And so I really hope this can provide that for, yeah, for does, a lot of and, people. it does.
1: Yes, well, thanks for, thanks for doing it, writing the memoir. And, uh, again, Uh, The book is Bald, Fat, and Crazy, How I Beat Cancer While Pregnant with One Daughter and Adopting Another. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday.
0: We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.katherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Katherine Zox.